want to frame what I want to say to you this evening with two personal stories. I think this is the best way uh, to begin. I want, I want to root what we're going to look at in the realities of everyday life. The first story is to help you to think about how to listen to what I'm supposed to say. I want to I pastor your listening right now. And then I want to tell a story that will really frame the topic that we're here to look at. Self-examination is a community project. Now, now how to frame your listening. Um, I've been married for 41 years. I know you're looking at... (laughs) Don't clap for me. It's an argument for grace. Uh, (laughs) I know you're looking at me and thinking I'm way too young to be married that long. So if you're trying to calculate my age, I was married at seven. And Lowell and I have struggled with this issue throughout our marriage. It's really, really my struggle. It's with the issue of time. Uh, Lowell was raised in Cuba. And she has sort of that island or Latin view of time. You know, you go to the islands because time slows down. She lives on a bit of a vibe. (laughs) If we agree on an appointed hour to do something for Luella, it's a rough, rough estimate. I was raised by a man who thought that the sole litmus test of the value of a human being was punctuality. If you're on time, you can live. And so I've struggled with this this issue. Now, the point of this story is Easter morning in the Tripp family. Uh, and uh, it's during the period of time where our children were still at home. Now, if you're the normal family with multiple children, you know that Sunday morning is not the most relaxed morning of the week. You're stuffing children in vans saying, shut up, we're going to worship. Oh, we call that preparing our hearts for worship. (laughs) And for reasons I don't really understand, our church had decided that the best way to celebrate the resurrection was to have a full breakfast before the service on Sunday morning. I don't know what that has to do with the resurrection, but it didn't make any difference. It was a tradition. Think about that. (laughs) You'll get that later. And so we had to leave an hour and a half early. I wake up already on Sunday morning with feelings of futility. (laughs) Not thinking we're ever going to make it on time. And about time for us to leave, I walk into the bathroom and Luella is there and our then nine-year-old son. And I can tell by the way Luella is dressed that she's not near being ready. So I begin to say helpful things to her. Like informing her it was not an Easter dinner, it was an Easter breakfast. She found that helpful. That's a lie. I reminded her that a couple of our children are already in the car waiting as usual. Reminding her that I was an elder in the church and my arrival before the ham and eggs was very important to my ministry. I'm, I'm cranking up the heat. About then... Our nine-year-old son said, Daddy, may I say something? I should have said no. He said, Daddy, 
Do you really think this is the way a Christian man should be talking to his wife? I slapped him. No, 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 no. I said, what do you think? Trying to escape the conviction. And he looked at me very seriously and said, Daddy, it doesn't make any difference what I think. What does God think? I walked out of the bathroom being duly corrected. And as I got to the threshold of the door, I heard this little voice behind me say, Daddy, may I say something else? I'm thinking, no, no, please don't. And he said, Daddy, what I mean is, what does the Bible say about it? I went into my bedroom and these two thoughts hit me. First, my pride reared up. I want to be a hero to my son. It was embarrassing that he saw through that moment and felt the tension that his mom was feeling. But that didn't last very long. I want you to hear what I'm about to say. I immediately thought, how could it possibly be that God would love me this much, that he would give one twit of care about this minor little moment in the trip bathroom. This wasn't just a Paul moment or a Luella moment or a Darnay moment. God was in that moment. Now think about this. This is one moment in one room of one family on one morning, in one house, on one street, in one neighborhood, in one city, in one state, in one nation on one continent, in one hemisphere, in one globe, in the universe. And God is in that moment. Think about this. This is love of such magnificence, I can't wrap my brain around it. Now, why is that important? It's important because you don't live in big moments. Most of us won't be written up in history books. You only make three or four big decisions your entire life. Several decades after you die, the people you leave behind will struggle to remember the events of your life. You live in the utterly mundane. Hear this. If God doesn't rule your mundane, he doesn't rule you because that happens to be the address where you live. No, I think that's exactly what gets us in trouble. You'll do something selfish in a relationship, but you'll walk away from that and you'll say, it was a little moment. That person knows that I love them. You'll say something nasty in a little moment, but you'll back away from it and you'll say, it's a little moment. This person knows that I love them. Hear this. The little moments of your life are profoundly important because that's precisely the address where you live. The character of a life, the character of a relationship is not set in three or four big moments. The character of a relationship is set in 10,000 little moments. It's the character set in 10,000 little moments that you carry to the big moments of life. Now here's the listening advice. I have little interest this weekend in talking about the big moments of your relationships because that doesn't happen to be where you live. But I want to shine the light of the Word of God into the little moments of your relationship. Be honest as a parent, as a friend, as a husband or wife, as a member of the body of Christ. What's happening in the little moments of your relationship? If I would watch the video of the last six weeks of the little moments of your relationships, what would I see? What's happening? In those little moments, we want to shine 
the searching light of the Word of God on the little moments of your relationship. Now closer to our topic. I was a very angry man. I didn't know that I was an angry man. My wife knew that I was angry. My children knew that I was angry. But I didn't know I was an angry man. I was a pastor. And in ways that now shock me, I didn't understand that I was in the process of destroying my life and my ministry and my marriage. Luella, in ways that were very faithful and very godly, would bring this anger to me and my failure to love her and love our children in the way that I should. And I would not listen. I would not hear. I would wrap my robes of righteousness around me and and tell her what a great husband I was. And I would tell her that I thought her problem was discontent and I would pray for her. I'm a bit of a domestic guy. I don't mind doing things around the house. I've for years done most of the cooking in our family. I like to say that's because I'm a servant. It's just because I like to cook. And, and I, I, again, I would, I would defend myself. I would, I would activate my inner lawyer, one that you have as well. There was a moment where I got in a roll and I said these deeply humble words to Luella. I said, 95% of the women in our church would love to be married to a man like me. How's that for humility? Luella very quickly informed me she was in the 5%. I was on a weekend much like this. And I was with my brother, Ted. That was my first mistake. And on the way home, we're traveling up the northeast extension of the Pennsylvania Turnpike. And Ted says, you know, Paul, we probably ought to make this, well, if you learned this weekend, practical to our own lives, why don't you start? I couldn't jump out of the car. We were going 60 miles an hour. And, and Ted didn't make statements. He just began to ask me questions. I want you to hear what I'm about to say. It was as he was asking me these questions, it was like God was ripping down curtains and I was beginning to see myself with accuracy. I was beginning to hear myself with accuracy. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. It was so disjointing. It was so far from my conception of who I was that it was hard for me to imagine that that man I was looking on was actually me, but it was. I was broken and grieved. Praise God, praise God for the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit in that car. 10,000 years into eternity, I will still praise God for that moment in my life. I got home rather late. And I'm a man, as you can already tell, with a lively sense of humor. And I usually enter the home humorously. I entered the home very serious that evening. I think Luella already knew something was up. I asked her if, if we could talk. 
And she said, sure, I'd be glad to talk. And I sat down and I said, well, I know for years you've been trying to talk to me about my anger and my failure to love you as I should. And, and I think for the first time in my life I can say, I want to hear what you have to say. I'm ready to listen. Never forget what happened next. Luella burst into tears. She told me that she loved me. And she talked for two hours. And in that two hours, God began a process of the radical undoing and rebuilding of the heart of this man. Now, the operative word is process. I wasn't hit with a bolt of lightning. I didn't immediately become anger-free. But my heart was now open, and my eyes were open, and my ears were open. And the next several months were dramatically painful. Uh, there, There are moments where the weight of that anger seemed so heavy, it felt like I couldn't breathe. I saw that anger everywhere. Listen, that pain was the pain of grace. Because God was making that anger like vomit in my mouth, so I would never go back there again. I remember months, months, months down the road, coming down from the upstairs of our house, hitting the landing, seeing Luella in the living room with her back to me. When I saw her, I, I couldn't remember the last time I felt that old, ugly, life-dominating anger. And I want to be honest with you. I'm not saying that I had risen to a level of sanctification that it was impossible for me to experience a moment of irritation. But that life-dominating dominating anger was broken. Praise God, praise God, praise God. And I walked up behind her and I put my hands on her shoulders and she looked up at me like this, like you would as someone came from behind. And I said, you know, Lowell, I'm not angry at you anymore. And she looked up at me and said, I know, I know. And she began to laugh and cry at the same time and I did the same at the glory of what God had done. Now that, that story really frames everything I want to say with you. I want, I want you to turn your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. No, we're not going to start with Hebrews. 2 Peter chapter 1. This, this passage is a diagnostic. And whenever you... you uh, read one of these diagnostic passages in Scripture, you ought to place yourself under its diagnosis. Verse 3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire." For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Forever lacks these qualities, is so nearsighted that he is blind having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Now, this is one of these passages in Scripture that has inverted inverted logic in it. 
I don't mean by that that it doesn't make sense. I mean by that that you, you have to start at the bottom of the passage to get the full intent of the top of the passage. Look in your Bibles at verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now here's what Peter is proposing, that there are people who actually do know the Lord. They have been redeemed by His blood. They've been saved by His grace. They are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but their lives are ineffective and unproductive. Their lives are not demonstrating the full range of the full harvest of the fruit of faith. Now, when you, when you read that kind of diagnosis in Scripture, you ought to ask yourself the question, who are these people? Who are these ineffective and unproductive ones that Peter is talking about? Who are they? And maybe you'd be tempted to think that there must be a loser class of Christians out there. And they just never get it right. And it'd be helpful if when they joined the body of Christ, we would just give them a black t-shirt. So we would know where they are at all times. Because they're trouble. Well, obviously, that's not what Peter is saying. Think about this. Who here in this room would be so confident to say in the last two weeks, in every situation, relationship, and location of my life, I have demonstrated at every moment the full range of the full harvest of the fruit of faith. If you believe that, stand please. Look around. If you're struggling with an answer to the question, how many of you would be quite comfortable with me playing right now a public recording of everything you've said in the last two months? How many of you would would be comfortable with me scrolling your thoughts over the last month on the screen? You see, in, in a real way, all of us are yet ineffective and unproductive in our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's, there's empirical evidence that we lay down every day that we are less than effective and less than productive, that there is still room for us to grow. Now you ought to ask this question as you read this passage, why are these people ineffective and unproductive. Look at your Bibles. We want to follow the logic of this passage. Whoever lacks these qualities... Well, let me go to, go to verse 8. Excuse me. For these, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unproductive. Here's what Peter is saying. If these qualities of Christian faith are ruling your heart in the situations and relationships of everyday life, your responses will be effective and productive in God's eyes. Let me say that again. If these qualities of Christian character, here they are, faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love, if they are ruling your heart in the situations and relationships of everyday life, the result will be that your responses will be effective and productive. Now, what are these qualities? 
know that these qualities are not just moral goals that you're supposed to strive for. That you get up in the morning and you pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you say, today I'm going to be more loving. Today I'm going to be kinder. No, no, no. There, there's something other than that. These are the moral gifts of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ shed his blood so you would have the potential to become this kind of person. How wonderful is that? Yeah, let's be honest. These things aren't always ruling my heart. If I'm in the grocery store and I'm rushing to get something that I need and the whole world shrinks down to the size of my need and I rush toward a certain grocery line, they're all very long, and the lady in front of me, she rushes in front of me with her cart with 150 items and she's got 120 coupons (laughs) and I'm sitting there now, I'm waiting uh, It seems like an eternity for this woman to keep pulling items out of her cart. I'm despising her more with each item. I'm thinking, who do you think you are with all these items in my grocery store? I'm Paul Tripp. And then she finally gets done. Finally, they've checked out the last item. And now she figures out that she's actually going to have to pay. I thought that was obvious. I thought when you went in the store, you knew you were going to have to pay. And she's got a purse that's big enough to be a tent for a family of four on a camping vacation. And she begins to dig into this big purse. She's not just pulling out makeup items. She's pulling out small children. And she finally gets her wallet. I'm thinking, maybe there's hope. I'll be out of here today. But she doesn't get out a credit card. She doesn't get out a dollar. She gets out a checkbook, which she has to write on very slowly and very carefully. Now, at that point, my heart is not ruled by brotherly kindness. I'm thinking murderous thoughts. I want to be in grocery stores that are inhabited by no one. (laughs) And you laugh because I've just described you. I'm serious. Now, why? Why aren't these these qualities of Christian character ruling our hearts? They are the sweet, redemptive gifts of Christ Jesus. He lived and died and shed His blood. God harnessed the forces of nature and controlled the events of human history so I could become this kind of person. Well, look at verse 9. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Peter roots the issue in identity. Here's 
the critical statement. If you forget who you are, you will quit pursuing what belongs to you in Christ. If you forget who you are, you will quit pursuing what belongs to you in Christ. You see, I think that it's very possible for us to be God's children, to us, for us to be saved by His grace, for in, in sort of theological ways to be thankful uh, for what He has done for us, and yet to live at street level as identity amnesiacs. Forgetting who we are and forgetting what we've been given in Christ. Now, how does that happen? Well, there is, is a perverse ability of everyone in this room, consider, including this man, to deny the evidence of my life. To deny the evidence of my ongoing desperate need for grace. In ways that you and I are not often willing to think about, we're all evidence deniers. Own it. You're an evidence denier. Oh, you have no trouble denying the evidence of the sin of the people in your life. You have lists. You have stories to tell, but it's very easy, it's very tempting, it's quite normal for us to deny the evidence of the deep and abiding need of grace that we give evidence to all the time. You know you're an evidence denier. That's why when someone points out a wrong in you, your chest tightens, your ears get red, and you begin to activate your inner lawyer and rise to your own defense. The reason you're doing that is because that person's view of you is so far away from the view that you have of yourself. And you can't imagine that they could possibly be right. It's evidence denial. And God in His grace will put you in situations, put you in locations, put you in relationships that are for the purpose to reveal to you how deep your need of grace still is. Now, if you're an evidence denier, you'll be a grace devaluer. If you're an evidence denier, you'll be a grace devaluer because... Grace is only ever esteemed by, is only, after, only ever valuable to, only ever exciting to a person who is a sinner. It's, it's only when I accept the bad news of the gospel at how desperate my need is that I will get excited about the good news of the gospel, how glorious God's provision is in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The bad news is the portal to the good news. And if you deny the bad news, you won't esteem the good news. That's the way it works. 
Now, you, you, you may be saying to me, well, Paul, what, what in the world does this have to do with relationships? Everything. Now we're ready for Hebrews 3. Everything so far has just been introduction. Let me read verses 12 and 13. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now, we obviously know that this passage is written to a believer because it says, take care, brothers. And Hebrews 12 and 13 is a warning and a call. A significant warning and an essential call. And I don't know how much you've studied this passage of Scripture, but the, the warning here is actually a progressive warning. And it's only when you understand the progress of that warning that you get the significance then of the call. I want to give it to you. Look up here. You have, to, you have to look at my body posture. Here it is. See to it that none of you has an evil or sinful, unbelieving, turning away, hardened heart. There's steps in a scary spiritual decline that is being described by this passage. Sinful, unbelieving, turning away, hardened heart. Okay, first point. I begin to give myself to subtle patterns of sin. I begin to let down my guard. I begin to allow things into my life that I would have never allowed into my life in the early days of my faith when every pore was open and my heart was so excited uh, by what I received in Christ. Maybe that's, that's something that I do with my mind. Maybe that's a way that I treat other people. Maybe that's, that's acts of envy or selfishness or greed or, or lust. Uh, maybe that's materialism and debt, uh, whatever it is. Now, when I, when I allow those patterns of sin into my life, because the heart of stone has been taken out of me and the heart of flesh has replaced it, my conscience will bother me. That's a wonderful thing. That's the, the grace of the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit. But here's what you need to understand. When your conscience bothers you, you only have one of two responses to make. The first, best response is that you confess that what you've done is sin and you place yourself once again under the justifying mercies of Christ and receive his forgiveness. Or, second response, you erect some system of self-justification that makes that sin acceptable to your conscience. We are so skilled at doing that. I'm about to hurt your feelings. Everyone in this room 
is a very skilled self-swindler, and you better know it. No one swindles you more than you do. I say this all the time. People laugh when I say it, but I'm really quite serious. No one is more influential in your life than you are because no one talks to you more than you do. See, you left. You're in a constant conversation with yourself, and the things you say to you about you are profoundly important. Most of us learned it's best not to move our lips. And don't change places as you're talking to yourself. They'll think you're crazy. They'll put you away. But you're in a constant conversation with yourself. And what you say to you is very important. So a man who's at the mall and lusting will say to himself, it wasn't lust. It was just uh, my appreciation of beauty. I'm a man who loves beauty. I, I thank the creator for the beauty he has created in his world. A person who's been involved with an extended conversation of gossip over the phone will say it wasn't gossip. It was just a very personal, very detailed personal prayer request. We should pray. A parent has just gone down the, the hall and gotten in their children's face with unbridled, ungodly parental anger will say it wasn't anger. I was just acting like one of God's prophets. Thus says the Lord person who's on an ugly quest for personal power will say, I'm not after personal power. I was just exercising God-given leadership gifts. You see, what we're trying to do is we're trying to relieve our conscience. We're giving ourselves to self-atoning arguments. Here's what we're doing. We're actually making ourselves feel good about what God says isn't good. We're trying to relieve our conscience of the conviction that is the very hope of our conscience at that moment. I love a term Paul uses in 2 Corinthians. He talks about pretenses that set themselves up against the knowledge of God. You know what a pretense is? A pretense is a plausible lie. It's a lie with some reality in it. If I stood before you this evening and said, in my early days, I was a female Olympic gymnast, that's a lie, but it lacks plausibility. Please tell me. <laughs> but if I stood outside of this building with a beautiful suit and a nice leather briefcase and some architectural drawings and a little bit of structural vocabulary, I could fool you for a while that I was an architect. You see, so what we do is we relieve our consciences with... with self-atoning lies, plausible lies, and you've got a lot to work with because you live in a broken world that's not operating the way God intended, and you live amongst flawed people that are, are not everything they should be. You have a lot to point to. I, I had a mom who, who said to me, I know that the Bible says a soft answer turns away wrath and a harsh word stirs up anger, but whoever wrote that didn't have these children. There it is. You see, what I've described then is that second stage, it's unbelief. I'm backing away from the clear, indicting message of the Word of God. I'm saying, no, this is not exactly what God says. This is not exactly what anger is. This is not what the Bible is talking about. I'm backing away. It's unbelief. And that unbelief then leads to further turning because a, a heartfelt 
humble submission to the Word of God is meant to anchor me. And when I begin to shuck and jive with the Word of God, when I begin to back away from its clear diagnostic, what always happens is further drifting. And ultimately, I end up with a hardened heart. What does that mean? It means two things. First, what once bothered me doesn't bother me anymore. That's a sad spiritual condition. There are husbands in this room. You regularly do things in relationship to your wife that you wouldn't have thought of doing in courtship. There's acts of selfishness and rudeness that you wouldn't have thought of doing, but you now have a hard heart. They don't bother you anymore. It's a sad thing. And that hard heart means that I'm, I'm not uh, open to change. Uh, it's like a stone that if you squeeze with all your might, it doesn't, it doesn't change. It's resistant to change. I'm resistant to change because I'm all too satisfied with where I am. Here what I'm about to say. I don't think that the crisis of the body of Christ is dissatisfaction. I think the moral crisis of the body of Christ is satisfaction. We're all too satisfied with where we are. And when we're satisfied with where we are, we don't quest for change and we don't seek the grace that is available to transform us. That's our problem. Now here's where we get to the relationship part. You say, how can that happen? How could it be that a believer would have a hardened heart. Paul, explain this to him. I thought he had the word of God. I thought he had the Holy Spirit. I thought he had the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. It says this, take care lest any of you be hardened, hear this phrase, by the deceitfulness of sin. There's your explanation. Sin by its very nature is deceitful and guess who it deceives first hear the gospel yes the power of sin has been broken but the presence of sin still remains I have no problem seeing the sin of my wife and children but I can be regularly surprised when mine is pointed out Because as long as there is sin still living inside of me, hear this, there will be pockets of spiritual blindness. There are pockets of spiritual blindness in everyone in this room. Own it. You want to live with the delusion that no one has a more accurate view of you than you do. It is a lie. You do not see yourself with accuracy, nor do I. It's about time the body of Christ began to believe that you don't see yourself with accuracy. Now the accuracy has grown by God's grace, but there are still pockets of dramatic inaccuracy of the way you view yourself, because that's exactly what sin does. It deceives you. It lies to you about what? You. It's one of the dangerous things about sin. 
and let's crank this even up even more. Unlike physical blindness, when you're blind, you know, immediately know that you're blind and you do things to cope with that significant handicap. The problem with spiritual blindness is this. You're blind to your blindness. Not only are you blind, you don't know you're blind. You think you're morally sighted. You think you know yourself well. You're blind to your blindness. So what has God provided? Let's listen. In glorious, rescuing and transforming grace, God has designed help for us because he is so tender and so patient and so kind in his grace. But encourage one another daily lest you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. God has designed his church so I would be surrounded by people who function this way. Hear this phrase as instruments of seeing in my life. S-E-E-I-N-G. Because I don't see me well. I need people in my life who will, who will see me with accuracy and in love will step toward me and help me to see myself with a greater accuracy than I see myself alone. I am deeply persuaded that self-examination is a community project. Because even in moments when I think I'm being real with me, I still am struggling with the deceitfulness of sin. Be warned. Be humble. Enough of the self-defensiveness. Enough of arguing for your righteousness. Enough of turning the tables when someone points out your sin and letting them know that you're not the only sinner in the room. <laughs> it's evidence denial which leads to grace devaluing how sad. And I love the words here. The writer of Hebrews under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is so persuaded of how profound our present need is that he says that we need that intervention daily. I need it every day. Because every day, I am capable of being significantly blind to the condition of my own heart. Here's what the call is. The call is for you and me to humbly and willingly live in intentionally intrusive, Christ-centered, grace-driven, redemptive community. Let me say that again. Intentionally intrusive, Christ-centered, grace-driven, redemptive community. The Jesus and me 
religion of Western culture is a delusion. It doesn't exist in the New Testament. You have been welcomed to a community faith. You are in desperate need of those intentionally intrusive, Christ-centered, grace-driven, redemptive moments. Now, if I would ask you this evening, I'm going to ask you to be humbly honest before God in this holy moment who provides sightedness to you, who knows you well enough, who has been invited by you to speak in to your life in that way. Do you have a name? I'm serious. Do you have a name? Do you? Because if you don't, you may be a Christian, but you're not living biblical Christianity. Because you cannot do this by yourself. I have committed myself to praying these three prayers every morning. I want to give them to you. Here's the first one. It's a confession. God, I'm a man in desperate need of help today. If you're a woman, you don't have to say man. God, I'm a man in desperate need of help today. Second prayer. I pray in your grace, you would send your helpers my way. Won't you, Lord, grace me with help? And third prayer. Very, very important cry for help. And, oh, Lord, please give me the humility to receive the help when it comes. I'm a man in desperate need of help. I pray in your grace, you would send your helpers my way. And Lord, please give me the humility to receive the help when it comes. Brothers and sisters, if I would watch that video of you in your relationships, if I would hear the conversation that you have with you, would I conclude that you're an evidence denier? That there are ways that you resist the empirical evidence of your ongoing need for grace? Would I see you in moments activate your inner lawyer and defend your righteousness? Would I see you isolate yourself from the essential sanctifying ministry of the body of Christ? Or would I see neediness and humility and softness of heart? See to it that none of you has an evil, unbelieving, turning away, hardened heart. 
but encourage one another daily, lest you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Are you living in intensely intrusive, Christ-centered, grace-driven, redemptive community? I want to say one other thing. If you're sitting here this evening and you say, Paul, no, I'm not. I live an isolated life. When my wife comes to me or my husband comes to me with a, a critique or confronts something I've done, I'm, I get angry easy. I defend myself quickly. Uh, I, don't, I don't think I, I really do live in the kind of community that these passages describe I need. Hear this. You don't have to wallow in guilt. You don't have to hide in shame. You can run into God's presence, into the presence of a holy God, and know that he will not turn his back on you. I talk about this a lot. You know, the most significant moment of suffering for Christ was not on the cross, was not physical, it was relational. It was that moment when the Father turned his back on the Son. And Jesus, in the deepest of griefs, cried, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here I'm about to say, Jesus took your rejection so that on your darkest, most arrogant, most self-righteous day, you would never again see the back of God's head. Now that's grace. That's grace. And I would say to you tonight, if you're that arrogant, independent Christian who hasn't really submitted in the way that we have described this even to the body of Christ, you don't have to walk out in guilt and shame. You, can, you don't have to run away from God. You can run toward Him. And you will know that you will receive mercy and grace in your time of need because all of your rejection has been fully borne by your Savior, the Lamb, the King, Jesus.